Amen. Aren't you guys excited Mariah's here? Uh, We began in the book of Matthew chapter 5 back in September. Matthew is one of the stories of Jesus, one of the places in the New Testament where we actually get to hear people's experience of him, the things that he said and did. And in Matthew 5, Jesus launches into this big three-chapter sermon. And we've been trying to hear the words of that sermon and figure out what they mean for us uh, since then. And today we're going to wrap up Matthew chapter 5. At the beginning of that chapter, the beginning of the sermon, the big thing that Jesus seems to be saying is that God wants to actually give God's life to you. And God wants to live God's life in you. And that no deficit in your life, no point of failure or weakness, nothing on your resume or in your history, nothing that you are struggling with can prevent that gift Rather, we are simply invited to live in a kind of open-hearted relationship with it and learn how to let it come into us and through us, which is why he gives those strange blessings for the poor in spirit and for those who have lost so much because he seems to be saying no matter who you are or whatever has happened to you or whatever you have done to make you think that you are ineligible for this life, he says no. God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life in you. So we've been trying to hear that Uh, through the teachings of Matthew 5, and today we're going to hear one more of those before we sort of wrap up chapter 5 and then look forward to doing more of this later in the year. Before we get to that, i got to do like two minutes of family business. I was really debating whether I should or not. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, One of the tensions in leadership is knowing when something happens, is it on the minds of enough of our people that we should talk about it? Because if it's not, well, don't talk about it. That's stupid, right? But if it's on the minds of enough people, you should, like, talk about it for a minute. And the thing I'm talking about is a Washington Post article that just came out that I warned you was coming out, and then it did come out, and it just wasn't great. So I'm just going to talk about this for, like, 30 seconds. If you read the article, hang with me. If you didn't, ignore me and don't read it. That'll be great, right? (laughs) Here's the context. A few weeks ago, uh, we had the privilege of hosting a little over 100 church leaders from around the country for a gathering for a couple of days. This was a, a, a bonding moment of kindred spirits in a room who have felt homeless for a very long time. And if you were here a few weeks ago, I described for you a number of the reasons that these church leaders have felt so homeless in the last several years. And if you heard me describe what it is that is drawing us together, hopefully you heard that a lot of it is like, like we're not this and we're not that, and we don't really know where we fit anymore in the larger church world. This is a, a gathering of people who are uh, very committed to um, personal faith and church communities that are deeply grounded and rooted in historical Christian faith. And at the same time, from that rootedness and grounding are making room for all kinds of questions and perspectives. This is a, a gathering of people who are uh, wanting to figure out how to speak and live a truly just faith in the world, but don't believe that that requires us to trade one exclusionary stance for another. I could go on and on. So that's the heart behind this gathering of people. We talked about it before, and then I warned you this article was coming out, and we didn't know what would be in it. And the only reason I'm calling it out is that if you heard me describe why all these pastors were gathering right here in the room that you're sitting in, and why we were hosting it, and then you read the article, you might have been confused a little bit, because it might have sounded like Jay said one thing and the article said another. So I'm just going to hit this very briefly, uh, three quick notes. One, um, the article is from the Washington Post. It's not surprising that they seemed to way overblow the political identity notes in the room which is why the headline talks about a post-Trump world, even though I don't think anybody on the stage ever mentioned Trump, as far as I remember. But that's the frame that was put on it in the article, and I think that's just not a very accurate frame if you're trying to understand why we were all together. 
Two, uh, just like on Sunday mornings, where we say that this is a community for believers and doubters and everybody who's a little bit of both, well, that room was also a room for believers and doubters and everybody who's a bit of both because believe it or not, sometimes pastors, if they're really honest and they feel really safe, are asking the same questions a bunch of you are asking and wrestling with some of the same doubts. And so it was a, a space that had room for all of that too. However, I fear if you read the article, you might have not sensed that this was a space that included room for those kinds of questions, but rather it was a space that was characterized by people saying, well, we don't believe X or Y anymore which just wasn't the heart of the gathering or the, or the kind of nature of why we're together or, or what was being said. Three, here's the one other note, and I'll just put this out there for perspective, and then we're gonna move on and we'll have more fun today. The other note about the article is just that our church got named in the article, which is, makes sense, because we were the ones hosting the event. Uh, aware that we were going to be named in the article, I volunteered three times to talk to the reporter, just in case they wanted any perspective from the pastor of the community that was named in the article and was not given the chance to do so. I'm not even really complaining about it, except to say that, like, the church got tagged, but we didn't really have a chance to actually, like, speak for ourselves in the article. That's all I'm going to give you on that. Good? Okay, let's move on. Thank you. Um, Let's move on. Get that off the screen. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) All right. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. I want to take you into the last part of this chapter where Jesus is continuing to talk to us about what it looks like when the life of God is being lived in us. This is what he says, Matthew 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, he may be, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is kind of a famous passage. You've heard the phrase, like, turn the other cheek. That's a mantra that gets thrown around from time to time, right? And if you just read this passage at face value, I think the first challenge with it is it might sound like Jesus is asking us to be passive. In fact, if you've heard, like, the phrase, turn the other cheek, tossed around from time to time, it might have been used in ways that are, like, suggesting that, like, well, you need to be passive in the face of abuse or injustice. Like when somebody comes at you or against you, your job is to be a doormat, like just sit there and take it. And not only is that the way this sometimes gets used, but historically there are incidences of this. And I'm going to get into this in a moment, but even the way that this passage is translated, the way that I just read it, actually is influenced in a way that goes all the way back to the King James Version, when the king literally was the sponsor of the translation, And the king had a vested interest in a certain translation of one of these words because the king liked it when the people in his kingdom were passive in the face of his power. So there's a whole history to the idea that this can feel like it's sort of a passive kind of thing. And maybe you're not worried about King James back in the day, but maybe you're like coming into this moment right now wondering about situations where where you're being abused in some way, whether it's um, a very serious form of abuse or whether it's uh, maybe not quite so serious but it's still happening in some kind of relationship. Or what about this? What, do you, what if you got neighbors who are being abused? 
or used or taken advantage of? What if you look out on the world and you see that there are places where some people have power over other people and they use it to their own advantage to the harm of the people that they have power over? Well, these are very real questions in the modern world, right? And if you just do kind of a cursory reading of Matthew 5:38, and you hear this turn the other cheek phrase tossed around in a way that you've heard it tossed around before, you might think that Jesus is calling us to something passive, but it, it turns out there are some surprises lurking in these sneaky little words that Jesus gives us. In fact, he's, he's doing something uh, quite subversive, and I'm just going to try to help you hear it the way his first hearers would have heard it, and I think you will discover he's doing something very different. Uh, as I walk through, through this text, one note, I want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of what I'm working with today is coming from a scholar named Walter Wink. Uh, you can look him up. He's a highly renowned New Testament scholar who's done a lot of work on the way that teachings like this lead us into real-world situations. And uh, it's been very helpful for me to learn from Walter Wink. Let's get into the text. You guys ready to do a little work? Yeah? All right, let's put the first part on the screen. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is sort of a reciprocal thing, right? Somebody like knocks your eye out, you knock out their eye. They take your tooth, you take their tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Don't resist. Just go with it. Just take it. That's what it sounds like, right? Well, here's that word that I was telling you that seems to be a little bit mistranslated in the wake of good King James. Let me put uh, the actual Greek on it here. So the word that was resist in the English is the Greek word antistenai. Antistenai. Now, the great thing about Greek words in the New Testament is that we also have a version of the Old Testament that was translated into Greek before the time that the New Testament was written. And what that means is we can take a word that's used in the New Testament and we can go back and see how that word was used in the Hebrew Scriptures that would have shaped the people who wrote the New Testament. Make sense, right? So we can go back and actually look for this word. And if you look for this word in the Old Testament, what you find, next slide, is that out of 71 occurrences of that word in the whole Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, 44 of those instances refer to military encounters. So, okay, that's a very particular kind of resistance, right? I mean, military resistance is, is different than just general resistance, right? Uh, perhaps we should say it like this. Next slide. That this word is referring to potentially lethal disturbances or armed revolutions. Or how about a little bit further? Uh, next slide. We could say it like this. When he says don't resist an evil person, it seems that what he's actually saying is don't react violently against the one doing evil. Now, this makes sense, by the way, that Jesus would address this particular impulse because the time that Jesus is living in, there are a lot of actual violent movements, uprisings, whose goal is to overthrow Roman power that has them or other structures inside the, the Jewish power structure there. But like often in this time and place in the world, an actual act of violent resistance is the thing that's being contemplated by people who are tired of having the empire's boot on their neck, or they're tired of having a puppet king of their own people make nice with the empire and use their power against the everyday people. In those situations, often violent uprisings are the very thing that people are considering. And Jesus says, like, you've heard that you can punch back when they punch you, but I'm telling you, don't take on that kind of violence. Now, with Jesus taking violence off the table, you might ask, has he taken everything off the table? In fact, I think a lot of days what it feels like when there's real abuse happening in the world, um, and maybe the violence is, is physical violence, maybe the violence is verbal or something like that, but like, like when there's harm being done, it can feel like we only have two options. We either harm back or we take it. 
I mean, doesn't it feel like those are the two options? You either hurt back or you take it. But of course, one of the problems with hurting back is it just keeps the violence in circulation. It just, the cycle just keeps continuing and the world continues to be violent. And the problem with just taking it is the violence will do its harm in you. The problem with your neighbor just taking it is it will do its harm in them. We aren't actually meant to just take it. Things like depression come along. When, when we just sort of like sit on the wounds that we have suffered from the harm that has been done to us and tell ourselves, I guess we are just supposed to take it, that's actually not a healthy or holy or redemptive way to be in the world. But if this is all the further you get, it might sound like, well, Jesus has taken violence off the table and there's nothing left and so we're just supposed to take it. But this is where those strange phrases like turn the other cheek have a deep and hidden wisdom within them. So let me show you what's going on here. Let's go on. Uh, next screen here we've got. Uh, this first instruction Jesus offers, after he says, don't return violence with violence, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, to work this out, it's better to actually sort of like have a physical diagram on the stage. Would anybody like to get punched by their pastor? <laughs> Sandra's pointing at John. I don't know what that means. Do you want to, I'm not actually going to punch, but I do need somebody up here. John, you want to join me? I promise I won't punch you. I won't even slap you. <laughs> oh, I think that needs a disclaimer. By a pastor or by me? Not by you. By me, not by me. Okay. Uh, cool. Thank you. This is John, by the way. Welcome, John. Yeah, say thanks to John. He's braver than all of you, so you ought to give him some love right now. Okay, I'm just going to sort of work this out with you, right? So he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, so which of your cheeks is your right cheek? That one right there. Okay. Like, like point, keep your finger there. Point, everybody see which cheek he's pointing to? Right? Okay. Here's the thing. If, if, if I'm going to punch John on that cheek right there, which hand am I going to use? My left, right? So this, this is my left, right? If I'm going to punch John like a full fist, like a punch, I'm going to come at him with my left hand, right? Anybody know what left hands are for in the ancient world? Wiping your butt. Wiping your butt. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> this is an honest room. Yes. In the ancient world, the left hand was reserved for unsanitary action. You would never use your left hand for any kind of contact, even if it's violent contact. You just didn't do it. The left hand was off the table in the ancient world for this kind of contact. So he's talking about striking somebody on the right cheek. And slap is actually probably closer to the right idea here. So if I'm not going to use my left hand to come at John's right cheek, well, then what's the nature of my strike at John? It's a backhand, right? Well, this is in an ancient honor system society where the backhand is only reserved for people of a lower station than you. In fact, we actually have ancient texts that prove this. So there are civil penalties in the ancient world for physical assault, for striking one another. And in the ancient world, if John and I are on the same station or status in life, if we are of the both, both of the same sort of like noble rank, and I come at John with a backhand, the civil fine for me backhanding John is 100 times the civil fine for me punching John. Because you don't backhand a person of the same status, you only backhand an inferior. Masters backhand slaves, men backhand women, Romans backhand Jews. But you never ever backhand a person of the same status. So first of all, what is Jesus describing as far as the situation goes here? He's describing when somebody of a higher station or status than you comes at you and affronts not only your body but your dignity with a backhand slap, right? Now, what does he say to do? Turn to them the other cheek. So, John, just kind of like turn your head the other way here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what has just happened? How, what's, what's my only option for striking John if he turns to me the other cheek? Well, 
I'm not going to use my left hand. My left hand is completely out of bounds. By the way, there were also civil fines for using the left hand in the ancient world. So the left hand is totally out. So what am I going to have to do? Punch him. Yet John has just made one simple move to take me from denigrating him to deciding if I want to treat him like an equal or not. Fascinating, right? He's just engineered a scenario where if I want to perpetuate the violence, I have to begin to see him as an equal. If I don't perpetuate the violence, he has asserted his power and dignity in the situation. You see that? Fascinating, right? There is a deep wisdom and mystery hidden here. Give it up for John, who didn't actually get punched by his pastor. So let me summarize here. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, next slide, this is a creative response. This is a thoughtful, creative response to an abusive situation. And in this creative response, first of all, the violence isn't returned, meaning the person who got slapped, Jesus doesn't say, well, punch him back. Jesus doesn't, like, teach him how to have a better right hook, right? <laughs> He's not teaching his people how to respond to violence with violence. So it ensures that the violence is not returned. But there's more to this. Next slide. He's also assuring that the dignity of the victim is asserted. If you're the victim of somebody of a higher station denigrating you with the backhand slap that reminds you that you were less than them in the world that they have built, and then you turn to them your right cheek and say, like, go ahead and try it again, but you're going to have to come at me as a peer. You're going to have to come at me as an equal. In this case, the dignity of the victim has been asserted. And furthermore, I think because you can imagine... The, the person in the higher station who is abusing this victim in the lower station, they backhand them and they turn the other cheek. Can you feel the disruptive nature of that? Even if for a moment, even if just for an instant, something is disrupted in the pattern and cycle of abuse. Now, just to like argue that this really is what's going on here in the text, let me take you to another one of the teachings that Jesus gives right after he says, don't resist evil, where, again, we think what he's really saying is don't return violence with violence. You've got to find a different way of interacting here. Here he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Well, in what situation could you be forced to go a mile with someone? It's a strange thing. This isn't like your running buddy who's like, you know, guilting you into like showing up and how strong you are in the morning jog. This is something else here. This is very specifically the fact that military personnel in the ancient world were legally authorized to, to conscript the walking labor of any of the people that they subjugated for one mile and one mile only. This is part of the delicate balance that Rome maintained where they kept power over the people but tried not to exacerbate the people too much because they were afraid they would have too many uprisings if they did. And so uh, a, a member of the Roman military in any of these occupied lands among occupied people could point to any of the people they occupy and say, I'm going to ask you to carry my pack, which, by the way, weighs 60 to 80 pounds fully loaded, and you have to go one mile with me. But if a Roman soldier is caught mandating somebody to go one step beyond one mile, there are severe penalties for the Roman soldier. So again, he's, he's calling out a situation that his audience would know very well. When he says that anyone forces you to go one mile, a number of these people would have had that actual experience in recent memory. They would have been walking along, going about their daily business with their own agenda, their own plans, their own needs. When somebody, because of the uniform that they wore, had power over them, was going to come along and say, I need you to walk a mile with me and carry my pack. He says, well, first of all, you're going to do it. But then you're going to keep going. Now, I want you to just imagine the moment on the walk. Where they get, by the way, the roads had mile markers. That's real. There's actual mile markers on these Roman roads. And so you, you get to the one-mile mark from where you started. And this Roman anticipates that it's time for you to hand the pack back to the Roman and get back to your own life and work. 
What happens the minute you take the next step and you keep wearing the pack? Again, one step shy of one mile, this isn't being governed entirely by your status, which is lower than his status, right? What happens the minute you carry that pack one step beyond that? You take it away, like, the whole thing is framed differently. All of a sudden, now, you are showing up volitionally in your own agency, doing the kind of thing that you would only do as a peer for this person because they can't make somebody lower than them do it for them. Do you, do you feel the turn in that? You've just asked this Roman to reconsider whether, whether they want to see you differently because if they don't, they need to take the pack back and let you go, right? You keep going, and I think, again, we've got a situation. Next slide. Uh, next slide. There we go. A creative response. There's something creative about this. I don't know that most people, having walked a mile with a 60-pound pack on their back, conscripted into that labor by the soldier, would think to themselves, I'm going to keep going and see what happens. <laughs> again, there, there's not a violent response here, but there's something about that first step after the first mile where the dignity of the victim is asserted. They're saying, I am choosing something here. And as I choose it, I am asking if you are willing or able to see me as a peer who gets to decide whether I want to keep walking with you or not. And there's something disruptive about this. There's something that takes the status quo and asks questions of it in a performative and unexpected act, right? Um, what strikes me about these scenarios and the way they might play out for us today is you might say that for Jesus, this is the difference between reaction and response. How, how often do you find yourself in a situation where you are being uh, abused in some way? Again, it might be like low-grade abuse or it might be high-grade abuse, but you're being abused in some way or you're watching a neighbor who's being abused in some way or you've discovered that there's a bunch of people who are being abused in some way. And the, the thing that happens immediately is there's kind of a reactive energy to that, right? Which, by the way, there's probably something good and sacred about that. Like, we ought to have reactions when we see abuse, right? But it strikes me that in each of the scenarios Jesus coaches us into, in these very concrete little embodiments of the big idea that Jesus is working out, that it requires us to go from reaction to response. In the reactive mode, it's just too easy to return violence with violence and keep things in circulation, right? But you, but you call it a, a quick timeout, and you think, is there anything creative that could be done in this moment? Is there any way that I could... Um, not return violence with violence and yet assert my dignity or stand up for the dignity of the person who's being abused? Is there anything that could happen here that could kind of take this whole status quo and tilt it a little bit in a way that disrupts it? That's the kind of thing that happens when we go from reaction to response. And by the way, if I could call something out right now, in, in a church like Stop and City Church, here's a truth. We have a, a bunch of people in Stop and City Church who, uh, whose kind of general life experiences and world outlook and all that, like, makes you likely to kind of feel most at home in spaces that could be described as conservative, whether it's politically or theologically. And we got a bunch of people at Stop and City Church whose learning and life experiences and personality and all that makes you feel most at home in spaces that could be described as progressive, whether it's theological or political. And I think part of, like, what's going on in some of that map there is um, some of the people who easily feel at home inside spaces that you could easily describe as progressive are tired of being in spaces where it feels like, like we're, we're just sort of passively responding to evil, which is not what Jesus is talking about. And conversely, I think a lot of people who feel most at home in spaces that could be described as conservative 
are tired of feeling like some of what's happening in spaces that can be described as progressive are really reactive, and it feels like they might be operating at the same level of thinking that created the very problems we're trying to solve. Now, that's not a judgment on either of those spaces. I think it's just more what I feel when I talk to so many of you and how you're trying to figure out what's happening in the world right now. And again, I'm painting in broad strokes that are so broad they're unfair. But I'm a preacher, you know, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> but there's something to be said here that like, we are desperate for a new imagination in the world. Like we are, we are hungering for creative ways, generative ways of interacting with the abuse that we see in the world. And Jesus seems to like be calling this out very explicitly. Now, um, I know that a lot of us have not been in a fist fight lately, and few of us have probably been mandated to carry an 80-pound back more than, or an 80-pound pack a mile. So I want to bring it back to the more like everyday scenarios that so many of us bump into. And to do that, I want to go back to a story that I've told too many times, um, but it's kind of canonical in this community, so I'm going to return to this story, and there's one angle in the story that I've told a few times that we've never explored before. So let me tell you the story. I'm going to tell it like you haven't heard it before, because I know that some of you have not, and for those of you for whom this is like a repeat, no spoilers. And then um, I just want to call out one angle in it that we haven't ever really looked at before. So if you've heard me preach everyone an icon, you've heard this story. Uh, back when uh, Jay was in high school, Jay worked at the Barnes & Noble, which confirms all your suspicions about what kind of high school kid I was. I was so happy to like, just get lost inside that palace of books. And occasionally I would get uh, conscripted, ironically, over into the coffee shop area where things would get really busy like in the holiday season and they'd put me on the espresso machine. And this is back when real people made real coffee and they didn't just push an automated thing on the espresso machine. Like you had to draw the shots. I was very proud of my labor at the espresso machine at Starbucks. And there was one day where I was at the espresso machine slinging drinks, and my friend Jenny was to my right at the cash register, and she was ringing people up. She and I are both late high school, both dreaming about what's ahead in life. When a thing happened that happens often in service jobs and retail, and if you've not worked a service job or retail, you don't know this, but even in civilized middle American society, people can be awful especially when they find themselves talking to somebody wearing an apron. It's unbelievable. People who would never act that way anyplace else, there's something about the setup, about the countertop, about the apron, about the name tag, about the idea that these people are paid to serve you that just brings out the worst sometimes. And so I'm sitting over there at the espresso machine slinging drinks. My friend Jenny's to the right of the cash register. When a woman walks in who I have affectionately named Snotty Lady, and it was one of those things that had I not seen it before, I wouldn't believe it. But with no provocation, with, with nothing happening on Jenny's side to draw it out, Snotty Lady just decided to have a bad day and give it to Jenny. You know what I mean? I mean, by the way, Jenny was bright. She was kind. She was quick. She knew what she was doing. Like, she's everything you want in the person who stands between you and your coffee, right? Jenny's great, and yet snotty lady, just from the minute she walks up to the countertop, she's, she's abusive to Jenny. It's in her body language. She kind of like makes herself large and looks down. She finds these absurd things to quibble with. And I'm sitting over there making drinks, listening to this thing happening to Mari Wright, and what I'm wondering about is how do I get spit into snotty lady's coffee without her noticing, <laughs> which I didn't do because it's a felony. Uh, I'm trying to resist evil with, with evil, right? I'm like, oh, you're going to get snotty with her? I'll get snotty with your coffee, right? That's, that's how I'm feeling at the time. But this, this whole thing is going down. 
When manager lady walks in to get in line for her own cup of coffee, manager lady at Barnes & Noble was wonderful. She was kind of motherly to all of us who were like in high school and early college who worked at the store. She was smart, she was uh, kind, she was also shrewd in like the best possible way. And so manager lady walks in, and manager lady is standing behind snotty lady, and snotty lady doesn't realize that she's being observed by somebody else while this whole exchange is going on. And I'm making my drink, and I'm watching manager lady, and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen. And this is the part of the story that I've not drawn out quite as much, but I think it's the part that's interesting in light of what Jesus is saying today. Manager lady kind of watches this for a moment, and then as snotty lady takes a breath, just so that she can, like, re-up her arsenal of insults, and, and scorn at Jenny. As snotty lady takes a breath, manager lady speaks up over the shoulder of snotty lady, speaks to Jenny, and by asking Jenny a question, she tilts the whole thing because manager lady knew something about Jenny that snotty lady didn't know. So snotty lady takes a breath before she gets ready to just be a, a thing I shouldn't say in church, but to be, to be a certain kind of person to Jenny. As she takes a breath so that she can do more of that to Jenny, manager lady speaks over the shoulder of snotty lady and says to Jenny, hey, Jenny, I heard you got into Harvard. Are you excited? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> this was true of Jenny. She was going to Harvard that fall. And in one moment, snotty lady like turns on a dime. It's like, oh, Harvard. Oh, how wonderful, dear. My friend's daughter went to Harvard. Are you excited? And I just, like, over the drinks, I'm just thinking like, shut up, lady, right? <laughs> the transparency of, of her uh, worldview was so clear and so problematic. But here's the thing I just want to draw out quickly for you today. Your manager lady. And you walk in and you see one of your people being abused. What do you do? Do you just like get in their face? Do you, you know, do you just like square up in front of her and say, nobody talks to my people like that, get out of my store? Well, I don't even know if that would have been wrong. Might have been right, might have been good, but that's not what she did. And I think what she did was more interesting, and I think it was more creative, and I think it did more to assert the dignity of Jenny, and I think it did more to disrupt snotty lady in a really powerful way, right? Um, let me put those, those same categories on the screen one more time, that list a creative response. It was so much more creative for manager lady to sit back for a moment and then think about what's the thing that's actually gonna tilt this interaction, right? Um, it didn't just like put her in her place. Oh, you're gonna be snotty to her, I'll be snotty to you. I mean, that would be a way of doing this, right? You're gonna use your power right now, I'm gonna use my power even more, right? That, that would be a way of interacting, but she didn't do that. She didn't return the same kind of energy at this woman in a kind of like status quo stalemate that keeps happening in the world when we just react to the things that we don't like when we see it, right? The dignity of the victim is asserted in a beautiful way, right? I mean, like first of all, even the fact that manager lady decided to speak to Jenny and not snotty lady, right? That's an assertion of Jenny's dignity. Hey, I'm going to talk to Jenny right now because she matters in this moment. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use something about Jenny to point out to you that she's a whole person. Now, by the way, we could quibble with the fact that it stinks that it took Harvard to assert her dignity because it didn't, like Harvard shouldn't be the thing that makes Jenny matter, but it's the thing she used in that moment, and I think it was really savvy. And then, honestly, like, I hope that snotty lady went home and had to rethink some things, right? I wonder how many other people in aprons she has dismissed or underestimated, Right? Now, I don't know if Snotty Lady changed one bit that day, but at least for a moment, this thing was disrupted. And it was disrupted more creatively and I think more effectively than had she just like come at Snotty Lady and been just super confrontational for the sake of it, right? That to me 
Like, every time I think of manager lady, I think I, that's, that's the kind of stuff that Jesus is drawing us out into with these strange things like turn the other cheek. Like, find a way to disrupt the violence and not return it, but also assert your dignity in the process. Um, I'm going to wrap this up here. I, uh, I had the privilege a few years ago of being in Kenya with a group of young leaders from all over the world. And these are young leaders who lead nonviolent resistance movements in their country. These are, for example, like 20-year-old kids in Afghanistan who lead anti-Taliban youth recruitment movements, who are trying to make sure that the youth in Afghanistan don't get recruited by the Taliban, but instead get recruited into a better and more generative vision of that country's life together. So we're there with these brave, bright, inspiring young kids. And the other person who was there was this scholar from Harvard named Erica Chenoweth. Harvard seems to be the theme today. I didn't even realize that. Go Irish. Um, just in case you're wondering where we're at. Uh, the scholar's name is Erica Chenoweth. And what I discovered is that Chenoweth is um, like the leading edge scholar in the world right now on civil resistance and nonviolence. And Chenoweth, along with a research partner, had written a book uh, about why civil resistance works. And here's the thing about Chenoweth. I, I actually got like a lot of time with her. We'd spent some time together while we were there. Um, Chenoweth's not coming at this with any kind of like ideological convictions. She's a scholar who was just genuinely curious. If you're in an unjust situation, what's the best way to get what you want? That was her question. If you're in an unjust situation, what's the best way to change that situation? That was her only question. And by the way, if you want to know anything about her ideology, her first plan was actually to go into like military research. Like she was going to use her research tactics to help militaries get better at what militaries do. But she kept pursuing this question. If you want things to get better, what's the best way to do it? Not the most Christian way. She's not a Christian, as far as I know. Not the most, like, like enlightened way. Just brutally, practically, tactically. What's the best way to get what you want? And after surveying hundreds of resistance movements from around the world and doing deep dives in the data, they came to this overwhelming conclusion. Like, the data is overwhelming. That if you were in an unjust situation, the best way to get what you want is to do it nonviolently, yeah. period. Like, they have all this, long, like, longitudinal evidence that movements that attain what they want through violent means, that th th those ends last not, like, not long at all. Yeah. Like, be because you can't flirt with violence and then be surprised when it comes for you. Yeah. Like, you like, violence can't get you to a nonviolent world. Abuse can't get you to a non-abusive world. It doesn't work that way, right? And so I just say that to say that, like, I don't think this is just, like, pie-in-the-sky stuff for people who want to do, like, Sunday school Christianity stuff. This is, like, brutal, real-world life. And the verdict seems to be in that Jesus knew what he was talking about. That, that when you find yourself in abusive situations and you're concerned about the dignity of people, that it's time to get creative and look for a pause between reaction and response and ask yourself if there's any way that you could tilt things there, Right? Now, one more note, which is when we talk about creativity and dignity and disrupting cycles of abuse, I don't know many categories of action that sound more like God to me than that. Creativity. The first word about God is that God gets God's hands on the raw materials of creation and makes beautiful things. Read Genesis 1. It is a poem to the creative, generative, endless vision of God to make beautiful things out of the raw materials. If you're talking about creativity, you are talking about God. If you're talking about dignity, you are talking about God. 
The next thing you read in Genesis, after God does all that creating, is that God calls us bearers of God's image. That to, to be like God is also to see the dignity in your human sisters and brothers. I mean, it's one of the first things that God says in the text is God sees the dignity in the people that God has made. And so if you were talking about dignity and working for dignity and fighting for dignity, you were talking about the life of God in the world. And if you were talking about disrupting patterns of abuse, well, let's just say, read the prophets, read the life of Jesus, you will discover that God is in the business of disrupting patterns of abuse. And I say all that to say that I think if you find yourself in a moment where you or a neighbor or a whole group of people are being abused, and you begin to ask questions about, like, what's the creative response to this? What's the nonviolent response that could tilt this whole thing? How do I assert the dignity of people whose dignity is being denigrated? How do I disrupt this? My suspicion is if you want to, if you look for it, if you are open to it, you might discover that God is actually living God's life in you and that you're not alone in that work, that, that you are participating in something bigger than you. It might be hard. You might beat your head against the wall for a while trying to figure out what the creative response is, but I think you will discover that God is living God's life in you, which is why I think Jesus is talking about it because he began this whole thing by saying no matter who you are, or where you've been, or what you've done, or what has happened to you, God thinks so highly of you that God wants to live God's life in you. And that's the promise that keeps getting worked out. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? We'll have boxing matches afterwards in room four. <laughs> uh, a benediction, and we'll be on our way. May you trust Jesus who says that violence won't get us anywhere. May we root out the violence in our world and also the violence in our hearts. When we find ourselves or others being abused, may you enter those situations with the same creative impulses that Jesus keeps bringing to the world. May we assert the dignity of those whose dignity has been thrashed and denigrated. May we look to love even our enemies, even those who come against us. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.